No spider has ever gotten into my stomach. Are we supposed to believe that Cobb is a synonym for spider? Some daddy longlegs have no children. Some black widows have never been married. Some brown recluses are very social. There are more than three kinds of spider. Not every mysterious welt is a spider bite. No spider actually wants curds and whey. Itsy bitsy is a dismissive way to refer to a spider of any size. So many stars! Hello, and welcome to the 35th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Durant, and Out of All Doors is the premier podcast for lovers of the outdoors, and even more so, for lovers of finding out how issues related to this podcast have upset me this month. It has also recently transitioned into being the perfect podcast for people who want their podcasts to be shorter than one hour, and to no longer feature contributions from certain people because those people have probably died. Although I did receive confirmation that Matt is still alive this month, perhaps barely clinging to life, because he sent in a five people you meet segment so that's good news but i didn't hear from grang so it's highly likely that even as we accept matt back into the land of the living grang has finally come to an end now i can't recall if i ever actually verbalized a desire to trade the life of grang for the life of matt during last episode's introduction but if i did i can assure you that that wish had no actual effect on reality and that whatever happened would have happened whether i had wished for it to happen or not So, I will accept neither blame nor credit, but will rather just sit here and nod my head at the mysterious workings of Providence, neither indicating approval nor disapproval with the expression on my face. And what would Providence care about my opinion anyway? As I'm releasing this on Halloween, or perhaps very shortly before or after Halloween, you're probably expecting some scary content. You want me to deliver the thrill of a good fright. Well, it's 2017, and in 2017, what's the most frightening thing of all? That's right, an online coordinated harassment campaign, which is exactly what I've been enduring for the last month. So buckle in for the most chilling tale you're likely to hear this Halloween. We'll start at the beginning with the first email I received, which I'll admit seemed innocuous enough at the time. Dear Adam, I have been an avid listener of Out of All Doors for two years. I have loved just about every minute of it, with the exception of maybe regarding the dawn. However, I'm not sure I can listen anymore. A couple of months ago, one of your submitters, I think his name is Gring, came up with a brilliant idea for an Out of All Doors segment, and you completely blew it off. You see, I am the president of Trout Lovers of America, and the idea of a Trout of All Doors segment simply thrills me. It excites many of our members. I feel like it's probably been the best segment idea to come from your show in a long time. What is your issue with the trout? Did a trout murder one of your best friends? Did a trout bully you in high school? I really feel like if you gave this noble fish a little bit of airtime on your podcast, your listenership would increase dramatically. The trout is a part of nature. The trout is a part of the outdoors. I thought that's what your podcast was all about. Nature. The outdoors. However, since you seem so bent on ignoring our beloved... Onkorinkus? I assume that's a scientific name. I am recommending that all members of the Trout Lovers of America boycott Out of All Doors. This saddens me as I will never again get to hear about the new and exciting products that Gentleman's Mills has to offer. Sincerely, Dr. David Cahill, Trout Lovers of America. Now, I'll admit, I was initially willing to hear what this guy had to say. He appealed to me right off the bat by disdaining regarding the dawn, which everyone knows is the worst part of the show. 
However, that appeal didn't last long as he immediately segued into praise for one of Grang's awful segment ideas. Although I sort of liked the fact that he called him Gring, which would be a funny thing to call Grang, although perhaps not funnier than Grang. Anyway, all that said, I still felt like perhaps I should address this letter in a serious way this month, that I should point out that I am not opposed to having a segment about Trout, but that I merely oppose a segment about Trout as done by Grang, just as I oppose the idea of any segment done by Grang, because a segment done by Grang would probably give regarding the Dawn a run for its money in terms of overall badness. I intended to conclude by explaining that I don't bear any ill will toward Trout, and that I would be willing to consider including a Trout segment contributed by anyone except Grang. But then the next email came. Dear Adam, I am a card-carrying member of the Trout Lovers of America. So yesterday, when our president sent us an email about boycotting your show, I was sad. Sad because this could have so easily been avoided. Trout of all doors should and has to happen. Think about all the different segments within that segment that are possible. You could have a trout fishing segment. You could have a segment about preparing trout for cooking. You could have a segment where you read some sort of story about trout with some hypnotic synth music in the background. You could call it the Troutery. It'd be brilliant. You could have a list of the ten types of trout you meet. On Regarding the Dawn, Cousin Ben and Dwayne could teach us how to photograph trout and then ultimately argue about something that has nothing to do with photography and then end up trying to kill one another. Please reconsider Grang's brilliant idea. Trout of all doors needs to happen. Thanks, Nate Richardson, trout lover. At first I was irritated by this email. I didn't like these trout people trying to force their special interest into the show. I didn't like the assumption that I would have any interest in Nate's suggestions concerning how to handle a trout segment, nor did I like the fact that some of his suggestions seemed to border on mockery, such as his mentions of the Troutery, which is a version of a concept that has already been explored to poor effect on this show in the past with the Saucery, which we all hated. But then I noticed a few things. First of all, the writer of this email seemed to know a lot about the actual content of Regarding the Dawn, which struck me as highly suspicious, because that would have to mean that this Nate Richardson had actually listened to enough Regarding the Dawn to be familiar with the conventions of that segment. To me, that seemed to indicate that Nate had very, very bad taste. I was under the impression that listeners just skipped that segment, and frankly, the idea of anyone at all actually listening to the segment embarrassed me as I hated the thought of someone associating them with me even though they're on my show. Then he called Grang's idea brilliant, which it was not, and then I noticed that his email address was from the same provider as Dr. David Cahill, something called Proton Mail, which I had never heard of before. Also, both of their email addresses were formatted exactly the same. First name, last name, no spaces, all lowercase, at protonmail.com. Something seemed fishy, and I didn't just mean all the mentions of trout, which is a kind of fish. Then the next email arrived. Dearest Adam, my name is Marina, and I was once a listener to your wonderful podcast, Out of All Doors. But as a member of the Trout Lovers of America, I am bound by our president's decision to boycott your show. I had a thought today. Maybe you, as a young adult, are worried that this would bore younger listeners, that talking about trout just isn't cool or hip or on fleek. I can assure you this is most definitely not the case. I have three children, Gordon, Eli, and Latoya, and trout is all they ever talk about. They love it. They love it so much they wanted to send you a song they wrote about our favorite fish. I hope you enjoy the song. Maybe it will help you change your mind and Trout of All Doors can become a reality. Respectfully, Marina Morgenstern. Again, this came from a Proton Mail account formatted exactly like the others. Furthermore, 
While the use of the term on fleek could be read as an uncool mother attempting to use passe slang that she doesn't understand, it could also be read as someone trying to pretend to be an uncool mother attempting to use passe slang that she doesn't understand. And, and finally, listen to the song. I love trouts. I love trouts. That is not a song that could possibly have been written by children. That is a song written by an adult, most likely a fully grown man. The fact that Ms. Morgenstern, if she even exists, would attempt to pass off a song this sophisticated as the product of children is laughably transparent. And then the fourth email arrived. Hi, Adam. I had an idea for the intro to Trout of All Doors. I think you'll like it. Just sit back in your chair, play the normal Out of All Doors intro music, and say the following. Trout have no scales for the first month of their lives. Dolly Vardens are not related to Dolly Parton, but they wish they were. Rainbow trout should be a Skittles flavor, because then you really could taste the rainbow. A brown trout once saved me from rabid salmon. Catch and release. Trout fishing should replace baseball as America's pastime. I had an aunt who was a trout. Does a trout make a good pet? So many trout. Welcome now to Trout of All Doors. See, Adam, isn't that amazing? Isn't that better? Your buddy Joe Johnny Johnson. Again, a Proton Mail account with the same format. Also, one of the fakest names I've ever had the displeasure to encounter. Furthermore, a detailed, deliberate disgracing of the iconic Out of All Doors introduction. This was when I became convinced that I was the victim of none other than, yes, I'm serious, I really mean it, and I already mentioned it earlier, a coordinated harassment campaign. These were not emails from four real people with real concerns. These were emails from probably one or two people setting up fake email accounts in order to bombard me with a bunch of fake emails designed to either irritate me into making the Trout of All Doors segment happen, or else designed just to irritate me with absurd demands and threats until I became miserable. Then the fifth email arrived. From Sarah Baker, a memory from her childhood, told in haiku. All the schools are closed. Opening day of trout season. This is the Ozarks. This one broke slightly from the format in that the email address was Sarah B. is free instead of the expected Sarah Baker, perhaps in an attempt to throw me off the scent, but it was still from a Proton Mail account, and it was still about trout. Also, the middle line has eight syllables instead of seven. And I know that the syllable count thing for haiku is the result of a Western misunderstanding of the form, but still, I can tell that's what the writer was going for, and she, or perhaps he, still botched it. My guess? She or he miscounted the syllables in opening, treating it as two syllables instead of three. Then the final email arrived, and well, let's just say I took this one as very strong evidence that nothing about this harassment campaign had ever been sincere, and that the whole thing had simply been designed to pick at me until I got upset, snapped, and made a fool of myself, which I did not do and never will do. Here is that final email. Dear Adam, my name is also Adam, and it might surprise you to learn that I am actually a trout. How, you say, did a trout like myself get a computer and an email address? Well, it's the year 29753, and trout now rule the world. Human beings are now our slaves. It is indeed a different world. Don't ask me how I am emailing you from the future. Your infantile human brain couldn't possibly comprehend how it works. You may ask yourself, 
My dear Adam, why am I trying to correspond with you? Well, quite frankly, we like you, Adam. We all want you and your show to be a success. That is why we want you to get your foot in the door. You must change the show out of all doors to Trout of all doors. Trout Entertainment and Trout Shows are the wave of the future. By changing the format of your show to All Things Trout, you can ensure that your show will be a success and amass a great amount of wealth. Of course, you will be long dead before Trout gain intelligence and take over the world, but your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will most definitely benefit from this. They will be lead slaves for the most wealthy Trout, a high honor for lowly human beings. Your Trout friend, Adam Trouterson. I mean, come on. First of all, this still came from a Proton Mail account, and it was back to the original format, Adam Trouterson at ProtonMail.com. And the problems only multiply from there. Nothing about this email is believable. Not one thing. It's beneath me to even address all the ways in which this email is clearly false, but notice how he hides behind his alleged superiority to not explain how he can email me from the future. He doesn't even try. He doesn't even try to give a brief overview of the general concepts. That's because he doesn't know how a trout would email me from the future, because he's not a trout and he's not emailing me from the future. He's just some guy pretending to be a bunch of different people, maybe with one or two accomplices, attempting to drive me over the edge by making me think that a bunch of different people and one trout are mad at me for not enacting Grang's terrible segment idea. Actually, you know what? I think they're trying to ruin the whole show. They're trying to pressure me into letting Grang do Trout of All Doors because they know it will be terrible and that it will be the straw that breaks the camel's back and finally sends it down the tubes. And I know that no camel could actually fit down the tubes, even with the broken back, but still, the point stands. Whoever really sent these emails to the show is an enemy. A sworn enemy. Wait, is a sworn enemy the one that does the swearing? If I'm the one who swears they're an enemy, is that what makes them a sworn enemy? Well, anyway, that was the terrifying tale of the coordinated harassment campaign against me this month. I'm sure you'll all be huddling closer to your loved ones tonight after that. Let's begin, shall we? The Five People You Meet in a Scary Forest by Matt Martin Number 1. Murdering Bot The Murdering Bot is an extremely efficient killing machine developed by scientists at the Brookings Institute for Applied Mathematics and Technology. Murdering Bot lopes, lurks, stabs, and stalks with amazingly lifelike proficiency, gaze in awe and terror at such a mastery of technical precision. While the murdering bot is still in its beta testing period, it's able to bludgeon, slice, and eviscerate almost as well as any human can. Its pneumatic arms deliver an effortless killing stroke. Murdering bot wanders the forest, understory, spooking forest goers with its mechanized cries of Now is the time to die, your program is defunct, and Error, life not found. Number two is unemployed murderer Greggy. Stalking the scary forest in the dead of night is not only the murdering bot, but the human murderer whose job was outsourced by murdering bot. If you thought Greggy was mad at the world before, back when he was responsible for a string of grisly linked homicides, just imagine how mad he is now that a soulless android has stolen his job and identity in the latest illustration of the unstoppable forward march of our automated modern society. 
Greggy can be heard stumbling and grumbling around on the forest paths day and night, outrun easily by Murdering Bot's ability to alter its body to the terrain and see at night with its built-in night vision. Greggy simply trips, falls, splats, and spills, often stabbing himself inadvertently with his own murder weapon in this nightly comedy of errors that says frighteningly too much about our society's rush to adopt technologies that render us obsolete. Throughout the night, a visitor to the scary forest will hear the cries of many murdered wanderer, followed shortly thereafter by Greggy's cries of agony at having found their body already murdered. Number three, the method mascot. Ted Anderson, the man in the Squirrely the Squirrel mascot outfit, could be seen spinning signs and holding banners throughout the Tri-County area. But after a passing motorist yelled at Ted that squirrels don't dance, Ted questioned his entire livelihood and existence. Instead of abandoning the costume, Ted doubled down, legally changing his name to Squirrely, and showering and sleeping while wearing the suit. Now, to fully become Squirrely, he lives in the scary forest, where he attempts to befriend several groups of squirrels, which largely ignore and fear him, due to the tattered state of his mascot costume and his muffled chittering noises coming from his unmoving mouth. Number four, the man-wolf. This fearsome timber wolf is usually very solitary, but on nights when the moon is full and clear, the wolf transmogrifies into none other than a man. The wolf sheds its fur as its limbs elongate and its snout shortens. What results after the metamorphosis is a nude man, feeble and pedantic, who then tears through the forest, collating receipts, verifying memorandums, and whooping about how to be your own boss. Truly a horrifying sight to see. If you see the man-wolf, it's best to lay low until clouds cover the full moon once more when the man turns back into a wolf. Number five is the Lone Hunter. The Lone Hunter began his day with a simple quest, to find and shoot a decent-sized buck that he would then be able to proudly show above his fireplace mantle. Years ago, the Lone Hunter's father took him out hunting for the first time in this same scary forest, teaching him valuable hunting skills the Lone Hunter has been using ever since. This year, it's more imperative than ever to shoot a buck, as this is the year that the Lone Hunter's father passed away from heart complications. To honor his father, the Lone Hunter has come out here, now, to find and shoot a deer. Unfortunately, he has been unable to find or shoot any deer of any size all day long, not even a fawn. The Lone Hunter has seen only a few sparrows and the occasional very large squirrel, and while he's found a few hoof prints, dusk is approaching, and still he has no deer. The lone hunter sits down against a large oak tree and thinks about his father and how the lone hunter is dishonoring his father's memory and all he taught him by not being able to hunt a deer. He cries then, his tears brought on by a mixture of grief and shame and all his unrealized potential and all that he can no longer say. He waits and night comes on, darkening all. Later, much later, the lone hunter awakens to the cold dead of night, finding himself shivering against the base of the oak tree. Not knowing where he is or how to get back to his truck, he cocks his gun and looks around. Unbroken darkness in all directions, like all the lights in the cosmos have been extinguished by some malicious god. His teeth chatter and he sees his breath in a cold gray cloud. He presses his back to the tree and waits and waits. He hears only the wind rustling the upper canopy. Suddenly he hears a sound, a sound of rustling, and it sounds like it must be something heavy much heavier than a chipmunk or squirrel, but something substantial. He listens closely, aims his gun at the source of the sound, and fires. 
He hears not a sound of a fleeing creature, but a mechanical grinding, a whirring, and then the night dark lights up with sparks. The lone hunter advances toward the sparks, wondering what it is he's shot. He steps lightly to the still-sparking metal pile, prodding the thing with the barrel of his gun. It makes no further noise nor movement. The sparks reveal an awful thing, what looks to be some sort of robot designed for the sole purpose of killing. The lone hunter shoots it again. No. No, it's dead now. The lone hunter hears. He spins around to address the voice, but doesn't see where it's coming from. Then the lone hunter hears a crashing sound as Greggy, the unemployed murderer, trips on a low branch and tumbles at the lone hunter's feet. The lone hunter turns the gun on Greggy. You don't have to do that, Greggy says. He stands, his hands raised. There is a tear in his eye and a big smile on his face. Thank you, he says. He wraps the lone hunter in a big hug. Thank you so much. What is it, the lone hunter asks, referring to the murdering bot. Shh, shh. Greggy says, placing his finger on the lone hunter's lips to quiet him. What? starts the lone hunter, but Greggy says, You, sir, have saved my career, and for that I... I won't even murder you. Greggy stands back. Even though I want to, so bad, he jokes, or half-jokes. The lone hunter, eyeing Greggy carefully, picks up the malfunctioning murdering bot as a trophy, carrying it over his shoulder as he walks, then runs out and out of the scary forest. Back at his truck, the lone hunter throws the robot in the bed. He considers it once more, then looks up at the heavens. This one's for you, Dad, he says, climbing in his truck and driving out of the scary forest forever. The structure appears to be made of gingerbread of all things, prone to collapse at any moment. A knock on the door produces a small shower of crumbs. We brush some of these crumbs from our knuckles. From inside the gingerbread house, we hear the sound of bubbling, intense bubbling. Suddenly, the door flies open. There stands a witch, a real one. The first question out of our mouths is a natural one. Are you a good witch, we ask? The witch grins. No, she says. We back away, frightened. I'm not a good witch, she continues. I'm a great witch. We all have a hearty laugh, except for most of us. Come in, come in, says the great witch. We follow her inside. In the middle of the room is a giant cauldron resting right on the gingerbread floor. Though no external heat source has been applied to it, the black substance in the cauldron is bubbling furiously. What are you making, we ask? Some kind of potion? Yes, shrieks the great witch. We forgot to say that she delivers every line in a shriek. And we decided to forego all mentions of her cackling, which is nigh unto incessant, except for this mention of it. But I'm one ingredient short. She reaches into the top drawer of a desk made of vanilla wafer and pulls out a familiar-looking wing. Our stomachs turn. She throws it into the pot. We have entered the battery. There are ghost bats, and there are ghosts of bats. One is the name of a certain species of bat, the other is, perhaps, the spirit of a dead bat, or the remnant of a dead bat's energy imprinted upon reality in some way, or whatever your favorite explanation for a ghost is, except this is the bat form of that. Ghosts of bats do not clank chains. Why would they? Bats have nothing to do with chains in life. Why would they in death? Do you see what I mean? Do you get that? Do you get what I'm talking about? 
because that bothers me. This assumption that the ghosts of bats are going to be draped in chains, clanking them together as they laboriously beat their wings, burdened by the chains, pulled earthward by the chains. No, no, no. One fun fact, however, is that their echolocation now helps them to find and identify other beings in the spirit realm, which the ghosts of bats sometimes then eat if the beings are at all insectoid, which, bad news, many of them are. Dr. Frankenstein's bat, cobbled together from the dead remains of bats brought to life by the strike of a lightning bolt, twitching upon the table while the mad doctor races up and down his railing-less laboratory stairs in a fit of creative ecstasy. Frankenstein's bat tries out its stitched-up wings, takes flight. Will the villagers seek to pitchfork and torch this unnatural creation? There's a good chance. After their success with the monster, they have been conditioned to view pitchforking and torching as an effective means of problem-solving. However, this time Dr. Frankenstein has a trick up his sleeve. The bat he made will never, ever throw a small girl into a pond, not even playfully. The invisible bat. Behold, you can't behold it. You can only behold the evidence of its passing. In that way, it's almost as if the invisible bat exists in the future, whereas you are stuck in the present. Or perhaps the invisible bat is in the present, and you exist only in the past, which I have to believe is the more depressing of the two presented options. And few animals are better suited to invisibility than the bat. The invisible bat would never use its power to pursue licentious, prurient, or... Uh... Hold on, where... Why are these pop-up ads on an online thesaurus? Uh, oh, there we go. Or lubricious goals. Whereas an invisible man will see his humanity slowly slip away, an invisible bat will only become even more a bat with each passing day, free to pursue its own nature entirely on its own terms. That nature will only purify, clarify, and... Oh, there, and depurate. So people have been clamoring for me to address vampires and their popular association with bats for a long, long time. And this particular venture into this particular battery, in which it seems like the theme is classic movie monsters, would seem like the perfect opportunity to do so. Having narrowly escaped that tight jam, as people, or at least a person in England says, I find myself in another equally tight jam. For when one considers how best to batify the Wolfman, one inevitably, after hours of thought, arrives at the Batman, which again seems intent on forcing us to address another of the most popular associations that people have with bats in our culture. From tight jam to tight jam, my day could be going better. The Bat Mummy. Ancient Egyptians were right about pretty much everything, including the propriety of mummifying bats. Of course, when colonialist scum invade the mummified bats' eternal resting chambers, they're going to come back to life, in order to inflict curses up, down, right, left, and all diagonal angles as well. These grave robbers will return to their homes, feeling safe in the familiarity of all that surrounds them, only to wake up in the middle of the night to discover that they have sleepwalked all the way to the front row of a packed, terrible, all-night concert. That's just one of the curses of the bat mummy. Bat zombies, I guess. Pretty similar to Dr. Frankenstein's bat and the bat mummy, except there's a horde of them, a whole colony. 
and none of your dorky zombie apocalypse survival guide literature that you conspicuously read at every opportunity prepared you for this, so that was a waste of time. But at least your friends and family got to coast through the hassle of giving you gifts at holidays for a few years. You didn't even mind getting duplicates. I can always use more, you'd announce with a grin, holding aloft your latest copy of the Survivalist's Field Guide Handbook about zombies or whatever, adding it to the stack, plus all the stickers, the t-shirts, oh lord, the t-shirts. Anyway, the bat zombies are upon you. They're not even turning you, they're just devouring you, you're dead. Don't panic, says the Great Witch, I love bats. I didn't kill a bat to acquire that wing, nor did I maim one. I took it from a bat who died of natural causes and surrounded by its loved ones. And, in its own way, it actually willed its wings to me. She stirs the cauldron some more. Are we in some way endorsing occult practices by spending time with you without overtly condemning you, we ask? No, says the Great Witch. You just came in here because it happens to be a battery. Oops, we say. We accidentally just spilled our cartons of milk on the gingerbread floor. Well, you've undermined the entire structure of my house, says the Great Witch. Please leave. Can we see what the potion does first, we ask? No, says the Great Witch. But we hang around a few seconds longer, happy to be in conflict with her, so that our parents won't think we're endorsing occult practices. A big puff of smoke bursts from the cauldron and forms itself into the shape of a bat. It billows ever inward, if that makes sense. Within its core, there are strikes of black lightning, visible as bolts of yet darker darkness. The beating of its wings blows a chill wind across our dumbstruck faces. We are all having quite the deja vu. It flies toward us. Does it intend to engulf us? To lose us within itself? What if we breathe part of it in? Will that be as bad for our lungs as two or three cigarettes? Then the bat smoke stops, hovering in the air. You're blocking the door, shouts the great witch. Move! And so, more out of respect for the bat smoke than at the shouted request of the great witch, we leave the battery. Your outfit of a day hasn't changed in 11 months. You've been trapped in the long swamp, wandering forward, surviving off of berries and old food that others who were once traveling the swamp left behind. You've been able to see out either side of the swamp this whole time, but you had to keep moving forward. That's the way it works. You saw the bedflowers bloom in the meadow to your left, and you knew the summer was ending when the horses arrived. You watched from a distance as they burrowed beneath the ground. They've been sleeping for a long time. It must be autumn. You continue wading through the dark water. You look up, and there's a clearing ahead of you. You wade faster, your pace quickening. Moments later, the swamp waters form into a wave. They carry you forward and thrust you out into the open. You raise your hand over your eyes instinctively. It's been so long since you've seen the sun. You rise from your knees and take a step forward. You can't believe you're finally free. You crossed the entire long swamp and made it out alive, in jeans no less.
Now what? For a third consecutive year, Gentleman's Mills brings you a list of Halloween costumes that you can only get from Gentleman's Mills. Gentleman's Mills Halloween costumes. They're from Gentleman's Mills, so you know they're from Gentleman's Mills. Number one, Joan of Clark. This combination outfit combines the best of Joan of Arc and Clark Kent while cleverly flouting known copyright laws. Remove the Clark Kent business suit to reveal a man's tunic underneath, like the famous crossdresser Joan of Arc was like to wear. You'd never know it wasn't Superman or that it was historical warrior Joan of Arc, and so we, Gentlemen's Mills, cannot be sued. Tub of Guts. This costume is both clever and eye-catching. Much like a tub of butter, margarine, or non-butter-based butter-like spread, this costume features a tub for the wearer's guts. And isn't our skin also like a tub for our very guts? And do we really need to distinguish that our skin is that tub, or is it actually very obvious? And so what better way to show off our tub of guts than to unshirt ourselves and let the world see our gut tub in all its glory? Tub of Guts, the costume, comes in an empty cardboard box, and no refunds are currently being considered. Lil Hadron. This wearable particle accelerator has a live operational Hadron Collider contained in it. Have fun being a real-life scientist. Please refrain from dancing, fighting, parkour, walking, and rappelling while wearing Lil Hadron, or the fabric of time-space could be compromised. Psychotic Clown. This clown is so psychotic that he didn't put on any makeup, wigs, or silly outfits today. His murdering spree is only in the planning stages, though, so he's keeping a low profile. But his shoes are a bit big. Big Mouth Bobby Bass. Big Mouth Billy Bass's lesser-known brother Bobby looks like a man with some fins pasted to his cheeks, which makes this costume a delightful, low-effort, high-cost option that necessitates only a modicum of explanation for every single person you encounter. Dumpster Fire Marshal. An authentic fire marshal's uniform adorned with banana peel, coffee grounds, junk mail, crumpled tissue, accidentally discarded wedding ring, incriminating paper trail, pop can, crushed spider, sprinkling of dust, fragments of broken heirloom, pencil shavings, dreadful report card, spat out Jolly Rancher of bad flavor, and decade-old burned CDR scratched beyond all playability. The Mustachioed Beard. You dress your entire body as a beard, then affix a small false mustache to the front of your costume in the approximate place in which a beard's upper lip would be. Infuriating Bum. Costume consists of a sign that reads, We'll never stop screaming, not even for food. The word for is written as the numeral for on the advice of a real bum. Tip of the iceberg. The vast majority of this costume is underground. The Human Gallbladder. Perfect for the man or woman who adds nothing to the costume party until he or she becomes inflamed, infected, or otherwise faulty in some way, at which point everyone is happy to see him or her leave and no one misses him or her once he or she is gone. Robin Hood. Although most of this costume is just a repurposed Captain America costume, the hat is right, and with the right hat, you are Robin Hood and everyone knows it. World's Most Confident Theologian. A big t-shirt tucked into denim shorts cinched around your scrawny waist by a woven belt. Paul Bearer. This is just a rental. 
We send you a full-grown man named Paul who you must carry around on your back, making sure to maintain the strict discipline the gentlemen apply to him while he's in the warehouse so that he isn't spoiled when you return him. Passionless fruit. This strawberry is a cold fish. Soul costume. You've heard it said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. With these special contact lenses from Gentleman's Mills, when people look into your eyes, it will appear to them as if your soul is dressed up as a skull, a full skeleton, or a YouTube personality of indeterminate identity. Close your eyes, for heaven's sake. Please try to lie down. At least try. I know you know how to relax, so don't pretend you don't know how now that I'm about to ask you to relax. Relax. You find yourself on a sidewalk in a neighborhood. On your right is a yard, on your left a street. You are walking with a tattered beige pillowcase in your hand. You are immediately aware of the fact that you are a child, aware in a way in which children never are. You are becostumed. You are tricking or treating in a Midwestern mid-sized town, and it is dusk or just past. Fences are bedecked with artificial cobwebs, although who is to say whether or not there are some real cobwebs mixed in with the artificial? Are scientists going through every individual fiber on these fences to determine if they are artificial or the authentic product of a spider's body? Of course not. Scientists have better things on which to spend their time, even in visualization exercises. One example would be mapping the human genome, which has not yet been accomplished within the world of this visualization exercise. Anyway, the porches of the houses you are walking past are also occupied by Jaxo Lantern, which is my preferred pluralization of that word, although I cannot vouch for its objective correctness. These carved pumpkins are lighted from within by stubby candles, and the faces they show to the world have been rendered by hands, so unskilled that the smiles appear, get this, vaguely sinister. Some porches also feature scarecrows, each and every one of them beset by geese. Nothing scares geese less than a scarecrow. Geese flock to scarecrows when they're feeling nervous, and what's more nerve-wracking to a goose than Halloween night and all of its attendant frights? You do not know what your costume is. You cannot see it from inside of it. You know that it involves a mask, for you are wearing a mask. And by looking down at the front of your body, you can also see that your costume involves a billowy black cloak that encompasses your body like a long skirt that begins at the neck instead of the waist. To you, this seems to indicate that your costume is mostly the mask. To you, your full-body black skirt cloak seems intended to say to those who see you, mostly look at the mask, please. The pillowcase in your hand is not overburdened with candy, but neither is it empty. You have entered this visualization exercise at a moment in which some progress has already been made, so you are not expected to start from scratch. And isn't that soothing and affirming? Doesn't that give you confidence in your abilities to acquire even more candy? You take a hard right turn and proceed up a front walk to a porch. The geese look at your mask and huddle closer to the scarecrow for comfort. Two jacks lantern bearing gap-toothed grins seem to wonder if now is the moment of their stomping, or if that moment is yet further ahead. You do not stomp them and their doomed grins grin on for now. Your arm emerges from the folds of your cloak, and you wrap your knuckles in the white painted wooden door of this house. From within, you hear the creak of floorboards as the house's designated door answerer dutifully approaches the door. The door opens. 
There stands a woman with one of her arms wrapped round a brimful bowl of assorted candies wrapped in packagings of all colors, textures, and thicknesses. She is wearing a witch hat, but you think there is an extremely good chance that she is not a witch, not in the traditional sense anyway. In all likelihood, this witch hat is a seasonal affectation, much like your own costume, whatever it is. But then, upon closer inspection, you realize that the witch hat is actually a man's top hat wearing a witch hat costume. So what you are witnessing before you is several layers of costume. Trick, you begin, before concluding with a sprightly, or treat. And what are you supposed to be, asks the woman in a voice better suited to declaring than asking, in a voice better suited to addressing irritable co-workers than addressing children in costumes that they themselves cannot identify? I don't know, you say, in your honestest whine. What does the costume look like to you? A mask, says the woman, and a cloak, of course. She lowers the bowl to you, for I shouldn't have mentioned that she is taller than you. Select two of the candies, she says. You rake your fingers through the candy bowl. You select something called a hot meal, because who doesn't like a hot meal? For your second choice, you select something called a sour something lump on a dare. A dare you make to yourself. Have fun, says the woman in a voice better suited to the phrase, be careful. She closes the door and you turn and leave the porch, the frightened geese heaving honkish sighs of relief behind you. The next house is strung with orange-colored lights, as if it's okay to just do the same thing that you do for Christmas for Halloween, except with the color orange. This porch has neither scarecrow nor even one jack-o'-lantern. They really do just expect the orange lights to carry the entire load. It's incredible, and not in a good way. Also, the porch is very tall. It takes you 15 whole minutes to climb the steps and arrive at the door, whereupon you give it a good old-fashioned knocking. The door swings open immediately, as if the opener had been standing with his hand poised just over the knob, waiting for your knock or anyone's knock. The man is a squat fellow clad in a pair of athletic shorts worn over a pair of jeans and a tank top worn over a turtleneck sweater. The tank top says, If you think this porch is tall, you should see the blueprints for my dream porch. Trick or, you say, building up to a big finish, treat. The man applauds. Encore, he shouts. That's the only one I know, you say. And what is your costume supposed to be, little child? I don't know, you say. I've not seen myself, and no one has told me what it is. Didn't you pick it out, he asks. I don't know, you say, hoping for some kind of narration to intervene on your behalf. What does it look like to you? Well, the cloak is fairly self-explanatory, says the man. Whatever you are, you're that thing in a cloak. I'm with you so far, you say, but what does the mask look like? Hmm, says the man, I feel like I've seen it somewhere before. Maybe in a movie, you suggest, hopefully, maybe on a website, maybe in an illustrated volume of some region or another's folklore? No, no, says the man, I remember where I saw it, earlier tonight. Another trickster or treatster was wearing the same mask, and when I asked her what her costume was, she said, ask the next one. And come to think of it, that was the trickster or treatster who was here just before you. So the implication I'm now remembering was that you would provide the answer to my question. But I can't, you say. I don't know what my costume is. What does the mask look like? I'm not the best, says the man. And the pause before he goes on eventually becomes funny. With words, he finally manages. He turns his shorts pockets inside out and some candies fall to the floor, one from each pocket. 
You may have both, he says, provided you are willing to pick them up yourself. You kneel and pick up the candies. One is a sloppy pop, and the other is softest possible gum. You have reached the end of the block. One house remains. It's just your average ranch-style home with a porch that has been enlarged multiple times in order to accommodate increasingly large porch swings. You can clearly see the different eras of porch architecture in the porch's design. Unfortunately, with the enormous porch swing taking up so much of the porch, it's not possible to knock on the door. How to alert the owners to your presence? How to say trick, and then or, and then treat to them? How to receive their candy? A hatch on the roof swings open, and the face of a young woman emerges. Are you a trickster or treatster, she calls? Yes, you call back. I couldn't figure out how to knock because of the porch swing. I know, calls the young woman. That's why I'm initiating our interaction like this. Understood, you call back. Shall I say the words or, treat, and trick now, but in an order different than the order in which I just now presented them? Sure, calls the young woman. Trick or treat, you call out, forthrightly, subverting your own expectations. And what are you supposed to be, asks the woman. What is that costume? Can you explain it to me? And please don't stall for time by telling me that you're wearing a cloak. That much I can see. But what is the mask supposed to be? You sigh. You set your pillowcase of candy down on the sidewalk next to you. Both of your hands emerge from within the folds of your cloak, clutch at the bottom edges of the mask, and peel it upward off of your face. You turn the mask around in your hands so that it is facing you, and you look at it. Oh, you say, I guess it's just a devil. It is, calls the woman. Yes, you say, see how it's red, see the little horns, the black pointy goatee? Are you not aware of popular depictions of devils? No, says the woman. No one is, not in this neighborhood. That much I know for a fact. But as you're the last trickster or treatster of the night, you get the rest of the candy we have on hand. I will send it to the mailbox through a system of pneumatic tubes. When the flag on the mailbox goes up, you will find your candy inside. Then she ducks back inside the house and closes the hatch. A moment later, you hear a whooshing noise, and the flag on the mailbox next to which you are standing pops up. You open the mailbox, and inside you find a plastic cylinder, inside of which are two pieces of candy. One is a crystallized mini donut, and one is a butterscotch rod, about the length and thickness of a piece of uncooked spaghetti. As you add the candy to your pillowcase, you wonder, if you did not know that you were costumed as a devil, and no one else recognized you as being costumed as a devil, can you really be said to have been costumed as a devil in any significant way? And now, as you open your eyes, take the piece of learning something or other about identity with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Is this on? Is this working? I can't tell. It's a light on. It's a, it's a red light. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then that's it. We're recording then. Cool. Uh, I guess uh, we're up and running. Okay, it's October 19th, 4.35 p.m., and I'm Dwayne Leesman. Gee, honey, in the house! <laughs> I am erasing over that. It's not going to make the final cut. What final cut? Give me a break with that thing. You'll see. Don't, don't you mean I'll hear? <laughs> oh, shut up. No. No, this is supposed to be where we go off the trail. 
Are you going to record the whole time with that thing? Yep. Yeah, I am. Because someday, it will be good data for any scientific articles I might be asked to write. <laughs> Come on, man. Researcher Dwayne Leesman proves the supernaturals exist with his amazing MP3 recordings. Ooh, I'm the ghost of Dwayne Sanity. Oh, knock it off. <laughs> okay, it's about 7 p.m. or so. About? Wow, so much for scientific accuracy. It's about 7 p.m. Fine. It's 7.08 p.m. Happy now? No, but your future scientific cocktail party buddies will be impressed with your accuracy. Is this just a joke to you? Yes. Man, come on. What about Weldon Key's ghost? Don't you believe in him? Sure I do, but I don't try to prove he exists with a tape recorder. It's not... This is not a tape recorder. Okay, it's now 9.28 p.m. on the 19th of October. 2017, and Ben and I have finally made camp for today. Did you remember to buy your ghost hunting license, Dwayne? Despite Ben's constant mockery and ridicule, I am determined to have a good time trying to find evidence of the supernatural. But Dwayne, what if the ghost game warden stops us? Stop it. We are in the woods outside of a little town called Mobine, and we are going to go hiking to an old mining town that has been abandoned since the 1860s? Yeah, 1860s or so. It's called Frestus. I can't believe I let you drag me out here, dude. We could have been home working on the podcast or maybe some songs or even some old photos or something. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And I can't believe you're not more into this. I, I thought this would be right up your alley. Hiking? No. Ghost hunting? Yawn. Oh, too cool for a little supernatural meddling. Okay, Arthur Fonzarelli. I don't even know who you are right now. I'm ready for some sleep. It just doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care. We get there when we get there. Well, it's 10.45 a.m. on October 20th. We still didn't get started early. We are still packing up the camp. And Ben is complaining as usual. I have a reason to complain. I didn't sleep well at all, I had bad dreams, and my tent is being a pain to pack up, and yours is just like, it just jumped into your pack. Well, I slept great. Well, I slept great. I slept great. Awesome. Good for you. I didn't, so I win. Okay, whatever, dude. I I'm not starting my day off this way. I'm going to go look over this hill and give you some space to be cranky by yourself. See ya. Fine. It's such a pain sometimes. Okay, it's now 3.20 p.m., and we have just made it into Frestus. Looks pretty lame to me, dude. And just what do you expect a uh, haunted 1850-ish gold rush mining town to look like in 2017? Oh, I don't know. Uh, uh, just a little more flashy, I guess. <laughs> okay, whatever. So, so what are we looking for here, Mr. Ghost Hunter Man? I don't know. Any evidence of supernatural activity? Lots of people have died here, and uh, there's been lots of ghost activity reported since those three Russian prospectors were murdered in 1850. Oh, right, right. You weren't listening to me at all when I explained it to you, were you? Nope. Uh, I just block you most out, out most of the time anyway, you Such know? Such a jerk! You know it! Let me know if you see a small shack, like a meat-smoking shack, about, oh, 
eight foot square. You gonna smoke some meat out here, man? No, it's the it's the shack the Russians were left to die in by their other prospectors. Remember? Oh wait, you never heard that because you were too busy being a jerk. You mean uh, too busy not falling asleep? <laughs> well, I guess you will just miss out on a little fun ghost stuff because you don't know what to look for. I think I know what to watch for. Floating tables, sheets with eye holes cut in them, and the mystery machine parked outside. Life is just one big cartoon for you, isn't it? Most of the time. Oh, nice. You bring spray paint along too to try and spook me out? <laughs> what are you talking about now? This dude right here. This graffiti. Whoa! Hey, no way! <laughs> That's awesome! Why is that awesome, dude? And yet? Because, dude, this is evidence uh, of what ghost paint? No, oh, no, 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 no. The three ghosts are known as the Nyets. You would know if you had listened to me. Oh, oh, is this what you were screwing around last night while you were trying to spook me out about that crap? What? Don't play dumb with me, Beavis. Last night you were outside of my. You were all ooh Nyet Nyet outside of my tent. Come on. Uh, I wasn't saying that. Well, it wasn't the deer or the owls, dude. It had to be you. Come on. Oh, man. This is so awesome. Ben, ben you, you made contact. What? The ghosts were outside of our tents last night. Oh, come on, Dwayne. Give it up. Yes! This is it, man! Whatever. I can't talk to you when you're like this. <laughs> yeah, baby. The Nietz made contact. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! All right. It's... 10.15 p.m., October 20th, and we are camped in the woods about 300 feet from the edge of Frestus now. We spent most of the evening looking around the town. You mean you spent most of your time whooping it up about your little ghost noise stunt last night? Ben still doesn't believe me that I didn't try to scare him last night, or that, in fact, that the Nietz made contact with him last night. Okay, wait, so, these guys... These Nietz dudes, right? They died. So what makes you think they're ghosts now? Because of all the supernatural sightings here. Yeah, like what? Well, after they were murdered, the other prospectors threw their bodies down a mine shaft, and then, and later, when they went to look, they were they were gone. So they were just really cold, not dead, and they thawed out and then climbed out of the out of the mine shaft to go dig up their gold. Big deal. Come on, man. That's that's impossible. They were dead. Whatever. So the supernatural sighting is that they misplaced some bodies. Big whoop. And then there were lots of suspicious deaths after that in the camp. And have been all kinds of weird stuff ever since then. Oh, whoa, weird stuff? Like people dying during the gold rush era? What? Alright, alright, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna stop this stupid thing. Dwayne! I'm messing with your recorder now! I'm about to delete all your files. Dwayne! Come out, come out, wherever you are. Okay, fine. Dwayne! Dwayne has decided to be a little baby about all this. He's going to try and spook me out by leaving the camp, messing up his tent and his gear, and pretending to be abducted by ghosts or whatever. Bottom line. He's hiding out in the woods, watching me, hoping that I will buy it and be scared into believing the ghosts or, or whatever. I'm not having it. I'm making some breakfast and waiting for him. 
Oh, uh, it's uh, 8.32, uh, October 21st. I'm eating all your share of the breakfast now, Dwayne. You better get back here. Okay, it's um, it's uh, it's 4 p.m. I've um, I've been looking for Dwayne all day. He, well, I can't find him. Either he's really good at hide and seek, or or. Uh, well, I'm starting to think that maybe he actually got lost or, or is like hurt or uh, something. I mean, he never misses a meal and all his food and his junk is still at the camp. I mean, I know he would have like, he wouldn't have left me and gone home because I have the keys to the car. So uh, he couldn't have hiked back to the car without camping at least one time in between here and there. And it's, I mean, it's a really long way. And he, he left all of his gear and tent. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why I'm even talking to this stupid thing anyway, but, well... Dwayne! It's not funny anymore! I'm going to make another pass of the town to see if I can see anything there. Stupid camping trip anyway. Ghosts. <laughs> Oh, hate this crap. <sighs> okay. Um, I've spent all day looking and yelling. Dwayne is nowhere to be found. I found... I found this this piece of his shirt. It was all it was all uh, torn and it had blood all over it, all over it, and it had a uh, it had a bloody broken fingernail in it, in the blood in the in the shirt. Uh, it, it's, it's nine o'clock. I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, it's going to take me forever to get back to the car. And I would, I would have to be leaving him out here in the woods. Uh, no phones work out here, way out here. And I'm not even sure if they work back by where the car is parked. I don't... I don't think that I can assume Dwayne did this to me as a prank anymore. Not after seeing the the bloody... Well, I just don't... It, it, it's blood. I mean, I, I think he's hurt. And that fingernail, man. I, I mean, it's, it's a fingernail. So, I'm left with like three scenarios. Well, two. No, no, three. Okay, one, he had an accident and he, and he's hurt. Uh, two, someone or something, like an animal, hurt him.
And three is uh, that something not, well, something else hurt him. I just can't. I just can't. I can't. Oh. I just, I, I, I just keep trying to, trying to remember what Dwayne told me about the, about the Russian ghosts. Just, not that I think that this is them or anything, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to. I just really can't remember all the details. It was something about the Russians that found a gold vein and the uh, the, the other prospectors, they tortured them to get the gold and they just said, they just said Niet uh, a lot. And that was why they call, I don't know. I just can't, there's gotta be, I just can't believe this crap. Why am I even talking about this? It's not ghosts. This is just ridiculous. I just don't... I just don't know. Dwayne? Dwayne! Dwayne! Is that you? Dwayne! 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 Hello! Gold, you hear me? I don't want your gold. Leave me alone. No, 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 no. No! <laughs> 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 